Thank you so much for joining me for this podcast. I am Rick Thomas, and you are listening to Your Daily Drive. This is episode 128. This past February of 2018, Lucia and I had the opportunity to go to Alaska, and on one of our meetings, I preached on a theology of suffering. That's what this podcast is about. And so, without further ado, this is me in Alaska preaching at Saldatna Bible Chapel. You may remember, and perchance you do remember, I just wanted to give you an update. <clears throat> I had back trouble for 13 years, had been debilitated for 13 years, and it got worse and worse. And I had back surgery on July the 11th of 2017. Maybe I'm going to need a, uh, I didn't bring a handkerchief. I feel so unprepared. I cry a lot, and if I start crying, I'm going to need a handkerchief. I had back surgery on July the 11th of last year, and this is, and so I've been in uh, hibernation for the last seven months, and I work from a zero gravity chair to where I lay flat out because it's still hard for me to sit upright. And this is the first conference that I've ever done old age pain was until my back pain went away and they left me with old age pain. <laughs> And I rejoice with my old age pain because old age pain is not nearly as bad. Thank you, brothers. Not nearly as bad as back trouble. And it was here that I found my greatest relief two years, uh, two years ago because there's an illustration that you never make in public speaking. You don't compare anything to a woman giving childbirth. And so I've never done that. But I may or may not have said during that meeting that this is about as painful as childbirth. And there was a woman that is here, was here who came up and she said, I've given birth and I've had sciatica trouble and I'd rather give birth any time. And it just made me feel good. <laughs> she understood. She understood. And... It's, it's just the most horrific thing, and it was just, it's just been, it's, physically it's been an awful 13 years not being able to walk more than 30 seconds, not being able to stand more than 30 seconds without pain. <laughs> the quicker picker-upper. <laughs> for, for those of you who are over 40, you'll understand that. And so I'm really encouraged and just thankful. We did everything that we could possibly do to avoid back surgery. And it's just like, I'm not going to do this. I am not going there. And it got to the point last year from April to July that I couldn't walk at all. And so we decided that we would have back surgery. And so we did. Last year was an uh, interesting year for us. Lucia found out she had cancer. And so she had three surgeries last year. At one point during the year, we were both laid up in our beds together. <laughs> After surgeries. It's not funny. Uh, but I looked over at Lucia and there we were. We couldn't do anything for each other. We were miserable. I mean, it was a miserable thing. We weren't miserable. God is so good. God is very kind to us and he ministered to us through that and through God's mercy he's he's given us three wonderful children and and they are just stellar and they have served us so well and uh, she had three surgeries last year and and as far as we know she's cancer free and so she's 
We are very thankful for God. We're thankful for common grace that God would give physicians, doctors the ability to, to do these things to us, and it's a wonderful age that we live in that we can uh, be ministered to like this, and so we are very grateful, so we kind of feel revived, and I'm glad that I can do my first conference here because I really appreciate, I'm, I'm an I'm, a, uh, I'm an advocate for Alaska. I used to be an advocate for Texas till I came to Alaska two years ago and I realized Texas is, you know, it's just that little state <laughs> up under Oklahoma and it's so blooming hot, nobody wants to live there. And I tell you, when you go through Texas, as we were a couple years ago, when you come up on a rest stop and, and the, chi- the, the playground area has a sign on it that says, beware of rattlers. It's like, well, first of all, why would you even put the playground there if there's going to be rattlers? And then you can't sit on the slide anyway because it burns the skin off your legs because it's so hot. And Texas is small anyway. Alaska is the place that you want to be. And I don't say that. I don't say Georgia is the place that you should be when I'm in Georgia. So I don't want you to think that I'm lying here because I'm not. And I know y'all would not judge me uncharitably. (laughs) Because I know you think the best, as Paul told us in 1 Corinthians 13. But this is a phenomenal place. And I told you, Pastor, just a few moments ago, we were down on the spit for two and a half days, and they put us in a condo that looked out, out at the mountains. And I told Derek also, it's like I could sit in that little box staring out that glass window at the Kachemak Bay and the mountains and it's just it's not you can't really describe it and I can kind of understand why the psalmist some of the psalms psalmists would just go off on these these psalms when they think about God's creation because when you up here in fact when we came up last time I, I did a photo book that's on our website and I called it clearly perceived, Alaska clearly perceived, using Paul's language that you, you see the invisible attributes of God when you look around here, and it's just a magnificent place. Our website is rickthomas.net. If you want to find us, that's where we do ministry. If you want to contact us, or if we can serve you in any way, it would be a privilege to do that. We would love to serve you. It's our joy our life is what we want to do is help people so if we can help you at any point please uh, that's how you would find us and I just want to put that out there tonight I want to talk about something that is very difficult and challenging Derek what time is this meeting over 730 okay thank you in Philippians 129 Paul told us that you receive two gifts when you become a Christian and so it's kind of like at Christmas time when you look up under the Christmas tree, you see two big boxes, two presents. And when you become a Christian, you receive two presents when, when God regenerates you. The first present that you receive is, is salvation. And Paul said in 129 of Philippians that it's been granted to you on the behalf of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but then the second present under the Christmas tree is that you should also suffer for his sake. The Christian life is a call to suffer. It's really clear and explicit in the Bible, as Jesus told us many times, to take up our cross and to follow him. If anyone 
loses his life, he finds Christ. There is a death call to the Christian walk. It's not the way that you want to communicate to people in your Evangelism 101 classes. Do you want to suffer for the rest of your life? Come to Jesus. We don't typically tell people that. What we tell them is about eternity and heaven and the splendor of, of being with God forever and having your sins for, forgiven and being, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1, uh, 1 Corinthians 1 8, you'll be guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Imagine that. I can't get my mind around what it's like to be guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's kind of like pain. I cannot fathom a life, not at this point, without pain. I've experienced pain so much. I'm 58 years old, and I think I began to experience pain maybe as I was hitting 30. And I've experienced pain for so long that I can't imagine a body without pain. And I think about guilt that way as well. And so when Paul told the Corinthians, by the way, he told the Corinthians of all the people in the world that you would say you'd be guiltless in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ, it was the Corinthians. And I can't get my mind around this beautiful aspect of God's wonderful gift to us that, that we will be in a body and in a place and with a person and we will be guiltless for the, uh, throughout eternity when we meet Jesus. I know that I am guiltless now, that all my sins, past, present, and future are forgiven. I realize that, but I still live in this body of death, as Paul talked about in Romans chapter 7, who shall deliver me. And so the pangs of guilt and our fallenness is all about us and in us, and it's hard for me to get my mind around this idea of truly being guiltless. The call to become a Christian and be saved and to receive salvation is an amazing gift. And we have not plummeted the depths of that yet. We are experiencing it now. We are enjoying it. It's hard to describe, no question, but as we say down south, you ain't seen nothing yet. And I look forward to that day, especially as I get older and experience this old age pain, this new phenomenon that just came upon me on July the 12th of last year after my back pain went away on July the 11th. But Paul said in Philippians 1.29 that there is another gift under the Christmas tree for unto you it has been granted not only to believe on him, salvation, boom, regeneration, yay, but also to suffer for his sake. Peter, a contemporary, someone who had experience with suffering, said in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, this is your calling, for you have been called to follow Christ. He has left us an example. As he has suffered, you are called to suffer, to walk in his steps, Peter said. We are called. Sometimes somebody will come up and say or ask, I want to know what my calling is. What has God called me to do? I don't know altogether what the answer to that would be for you, but I do know that you are called to suffer. And I would also say that that was my first disappointment with God. My first and second disappointment with God after he regenerated me in 1984. I sinned the day after God saved me. I did something that I should not have done 
And I was surprised. I was shocked. And to put it in context, I was 25 years old when God regenerated me, and I did not know John 3.16 when God regenerated me. So I did not know anything about the Bible at all. I had no biblical awareness, no biblical training whatsoever. The only thing I knew about John 3.16, though I did not know it was a scripture verse, is there used to be back in my day a white guy with a multicolored afro wig that sat in sporting events and he would wear a t-shirt that said John 3:16 and i thought he was really cool and just an interesting fellow and then after god regenerated me i found out that that was in the bible and i remembered the night that i opened a Nazarene friend of mine showed it to me in the Bible. He said, that's a Bible verse. And I read, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son for the first time as a 25-year-old. And I learned that as my first Bible verse. And so after God regenerated me and I sinned the next day, I was disappointed because I thought I would never sin again. I ask God to save me, he comes into my life, I am born again, and now I'm never going to sin and I'm going to live happily ever after. Now you're talking about a setup. <laughs> I was set up for disappointment. Well, there have been a few more disappointments in my life since God regenerated me, and I'll not articulate those here uh, for time, but you can read about those if you want to, as there's a biographical information on our website, but I will say that I've been massively disappointed in many areas of my life. And through those disappointments, God had began to teach me this, what I call a theology of suffering, how to not look for it. And I'm not saying that. You don't have to look for suffering, but it is a part of our life. And we must have a God-centered perspective on suffering. And as I read through Scripture with suffering in mind, it's actually everywhere. God uses suffering as a primary means throughout the Bible to mobilize His children for redemptive purposes. He did it with, Abra did it with Abraham in, in Genesis 12. Told him to do something crazy get up from where you live and I want you to move along the fertile crescent and come down to a place that you don't know and I want you to live here and he did imagine that he needed Joseph to fulfill his redemptive purposes and so beginning in Genesis 37 he had him pulled up and moved down to Egypt and you know the way that that happened it began by being tossed in a pit Imagine if your siblings tossed you in a pit because that was part of God's plan. Can you put that sentence together and, and see how it's a God-centered sentence that God allows? And then they pull him out and sell him to Ishmaelite tradesmen and send him down to, to Egypt. Joseph had a, he had sovereign clarity. He's, now, I don't know when he gained sovereign clarity or how it came about. The Bible is silent on that, but we know he had sovereign clarity because he told his brothers that in 5020. What you meant for me on a horizontal level was as evil as evil can be. 
But God, in his mercy and kindness to me and to you and to the nation of Israel and to that seed that he promised in 315, that he would fulfill in Galatians 4, in the fullness of time, God brought forth his son. And Joseph couldn't put that together, but he was part of that story arc where the, the Redeemer came. And Joseph was part of that story. God needed, he needed a man. He needed to position him in the land of Egypt because there was coming a day where 70 people needed to be there with Joseph so that this seed could be preserved. God uses suffering as a means to mobilize his children so that he can accomplish his redemptive purposes in our lives. And you see it throughout. I need a man who understands the backside of the desert. Who can I find because my children are going to wander there for 40 years? Let's see. Let's take a rich man and let's take a rich child and let's, let's yank him up and move him to the backside of the desert so he can learn how to live there because my children need to be preserved and so here goes Moses seeing him who is invisible think about that he had sovereign clarity it's kind of like what Paul said in Romans chapter 1 the invisible attributes of God are clearly seen Moses had sovereign clarity and God was using the mechanism of personal suffering to position him on the backside of the desert because he needed a man. And then they pull the curtain open in Job chapter 1 and we get a peek behind the curtain of what God's got in mind. And he has a conversation with Satan and, and how many of us have been blessed by the story of Job Forever and ever and ever, God's redemptive purposes are accomplished through great calamity in this man's life. But there's not a more profound picture of suffering than the gospel itself. There was a man who hung on Adam's tree, and through his death, salvation was opened up for all. Jesus in 22:42, Luke said, Father, if, it, if there's any other way that you would take this cup from me, nevertheless, not my will be done, but your will be done. And he got up and ministered to his friends in the midst of horrific suffering with a cross standing before him. He's, he's helping his friends. He was a caretaker in his suffering. He was gospel-centered for the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross, Hebrews chapter 12. Then it comes to us, our suffering, our life, the things that God brings into us. Do we have sovereign clarity about our disappointments? Do we have sovereign clarity? Is our first call to action, dear God, what would you have thy servant to do as this is coming into my life? And that's what I want to talk about this, this evening. <laughs> this evening, I want to take you through three text passages of Scripture in 2 Corinthians. And I, I pray to God that it would be His pleasure to, to help all of us, including me, particularly me, as we think about these three passages of Scripture. In, in the context of a theology of suffering, I want to look at 2 Corinthians as three hilltops. Three hilltops. A, a text here, our second text we'll look at, and then our third text. And so there are three 
major text in 2 Corinthians that all bring this, this theology of suffering into picturesque view for us to look at front and center and hopefully be affected by. The first text is chapter 1 and uh, verse number 8. Paul is talking to the Corinthians in chapter 1, verse number 8. And he's telling the Corinthians that I don't want you to be ignorant. I don't want you to be unaware of what I'm going through and what our team is going through. We are experiencing horrific suffering. We're going through things somewhat that are unexplainable. In fact, he says in verse number 8, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experience in Asia. The second sentence says, For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Now, there's, there's several things in these two sentences in verse number 8. The first one is, I, he's saying, I don't want you to be unaware. I don't want you to be ignorant of what we are going through. And so when you are going through, you're a teenager and you're going through a, a difficult situation at school and your friends come up to you and, and they realize what you're going through, here's your response to them. I don't want you to be unaware of the affliction that, we are, that I'm going through. And so you begin, that's your preface. I want to explain to you what I'm going through and why I'm going through this because I don't want you to be unaware of what I'm going through. You're a wife and you're in a difficult marriage. You pray daily that your marriage will change and you have sovereign clarity. You haven't resigned yourself to a difficult marriage, but you also haven't jumped into the other ditch to where you are bitter and angry and cynical and retaliatory toward your husband. You're not either one of those ditches, meaning you're not a doormat over here and you're not uh, angry and sinful over here, but you have you found this grace-centered sweet spot where you have sovereign clarity that God is up to something and I'm going to rest in Him through this crucible. Now we're talking about something different than being on the backside of the desert or being thrown in a pit or in a jail or the curtain opening up in Job chapter 1. We're talking about a bad marriage and that makes it a little more real, a little more practical because the truth is we can read these unique historical examples in the Old Testament and somewhat be detached from them because, well, you know what? It probably ain't going to happen to me and, and this makes a great movie. And I do believe it, by the way. But what if we do practicalize it and say that that suffering is your marriage, that suffering is your difficult teenage years? Or we can reverse the gender and say that it's a husband in a difficult marriage and you are not falling over here in this ditch of resigning yourself to the horrible marriage or going over into this ditch and just sending your brains out towards your wife and anyone else because of what you're going through. No, what you're doing is like, no, this is suffering. I'm not going to mitigate it. I'm not going to trivialize it. It is true suffering Paul is talking about here. But he is saying, I don't want you to be unaware, Corinthians, because what could happen to the Corinthians, if they had any heart at all, and I'm sure some of them did, is they could empathize. Poor Paul, you're going, and, and, and those mean, that mean spouse you have, oh, we should do something to that. No, 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 no. No, I don't want you to be unaware of what we are going through. 
And then he continues to say, and this is a key statement in his second sentence. He's saying that we were burdened beyond our strength. Now, that's the hardest thing that you're going to hear all night. In 1 Corinthians, you don't have to turn there, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 18 through 25, Paul talks about the foolishness of preaching. He talks about the foolishness of God. He talks about the weakness of God. He says the foolishness of God is wiser than men. The weakness of God is stronger than men. The gospel is counterintuitive to everything that we think, everything that we know. The gospel is, is totally different from how we function. We believe in strength and power. We believe in the self-made person. We believe in, in building ourselves up. We believe in being strong. We believe in America. Does I sound like a politician? <laughs> I felt very political at that moment. We believe in America. No, I do. I love America. Paul is saying, I don't want you to be unaware, God in his mercy to me and my team is pushing us beyond our strength. God is pushing me beyond my ability to fix this thing, and that is the kindness of God to me. Because the weakness of God is stronger than men. And the foolishness of God is wiser than men. God, in his kind, benevolent mercy to me, is putting me in a place that I cannot fix. I cannot intuit my way out of this. I cannot contrive any kind of situation that's going to rectify what I am in. I am totally unable to fix this thing. And that is where God wants me. And I do not want you to be unaware of the affliction that God is putting me through. That's what Paul's telling them. And he goes on to say in the next sentence, indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, <laughs> despair, affliction, discouragement, pain, suffering, and it's beyond my ability. And then he gives us the great conjunction, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Now there's a lot to be said here, but probably the main thing that jumps out of this sentence to me is the last phrase, God who raises the dead. He didn't say, but that was to make us to rely not on ourselves, but on the one who died on a cross. You see, there's a lot of people that died on a cross, but there's only one that came out of the grave, triumphant. And when God wants you to focus on your suffering, Corinthians, I'm just using the text here, I'm not calling you that. But when God wants you to think about your suffering, Corinthians, I don't want you at this point, I mean, the gospel is multifaceted, and I understand that. The gospel begins in eternity past. The gospel continues in eternity future. The gospel is huge. But when Paul dials in on this aspect of the gospel, it's not the man on the tree, not the man in the tomb. 
It's the one who came out of the tomb. He who raises the dead. And when you are going through suffering, you want to rely on someone who can bring someone out of the grave. And so Paul is very clear on what facet of the gospel diamond that he wants you to look at. It's the resurrection power of God that we are leaning into in this moment. I don't want you to be ignorant of what's going on here when you think of my suffering. And so now, teenager, you can say this to your peers. I don't want you to be unaware of the difficulty that's going on in my life, that God is pushing me beyond my ability to fix this situation. And it is true. It is true. I even despaired of life itself. I became so discouraged and so despondent that I thought about I'm just despairing of life. But God in his mercy breaks into this situation with the great conjunction and says, but God was teaching me because here's my propensity. My propensity is always to rely on myself. My propensity is always to use my ingenuity. My propensity is always to figure it out. And God can't receive glory if I function that way. And so God in his kindness to me has to bring me to a place where it cannot be fixed. And I didn't respond well to that. I was depressed and discouraged and despaired of life. But God intervened into my life. He gave me sovereign clarity that he was working. And now I see, I am learning how, Corinthians, don't be ignorant of this. Do not be ignorant of this, my teenage friends. I am learning how to rest and to be enabled and empowered by him who raises the dead. That's what you tell them in the hallway at your school. That would probably be awkward. <laughs> you can bring it down a couple decibel levels and you'll be fine. And so this is the first hilltop. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, when you think about suffering. Now what Paul does is he continues to push this idea. You could say it gets worse. The next place where we see this is in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. In verse number 7, he says, We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Here's the great juxtaposition. We have treasure, jar of clay. Guess which one we are? Jar of clay. That just grains against my soul. It grains against everything that I am as an Adamic person. It is interesting here that he uses jar of clay. Adam, red man, man of the earth, 2-7. And God formed man out of the dust of the ground, Genesis 2-7. And breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Dust man, dirt man. Wife, turn to your husband and say, hello, dirt clod. <laughs> you are dirt man. I am dirt man. Adam, we are a jar of clay. He knows our frame in Psalm 103. We are of the dust. Paul's, he understands his theology. He understands who we are. We are a jar of clay. Now what's interesting in this juxtaposition here, he says that we put this treasure in a jar of clay. Now a jar of clay is a recyclable pot, a, re a recyclable container. Dime a dozen or maybe penny a dozen. Not all that valuable if you break it, no big deal. 
Go get another one. It's just a recyclable container. And for, and for mysterious reasons, who in the world would put a treasure in a jar of clay? It's just counterintuitive. But God puts a treasure in a, a jar of clay, and that treasure is Christ himself in these recyclable pots. But here's the problem. We have to be honest with ourselves. We don't like being clay pots. We don't like being weak. We don't like being vulnerable. We don't like being in those positions. We want power. We want strength. We want wholeness, health. We want great. We want success. God says, no, you are a clay pot. And you must assume the position of a clay pot because God will not compete with us. And if you take the treasure and put the treasure in a gold-plated, diamond-studded container, and when you look at a gold-plated, diamond-studded container with a treasure in it, it's like, what is what? And so God in his infinite wisdom says we're going to put the treasure in a clay pot so that when people come by and see this, they're going to recognize this is the treasure, this is the clay pot. And God receives glory for this. And it's really what Paul said in, in verse number 7. Why did you do this, God? To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. God will not compete with us, and we are not to compete with Him. And so He puts His treasure in a clay pot, and then when people come along and see your clay pot life, and see the surpassing power that is coming out of your clay pot life, they know without question that that power belongs to God and not to us. And so God has to put the treasure in a clay pot, but we resist that. I don't want to be broken, dinged, and dented. Where the truth is, all of us came from the dinged and dented section of the grocery store. That's how we got into this world. We're Adamic, fallen, totally depraved. We are clay pots, whether we like it or not. We assumed a position because we want the power of God to rest in us, through us, and to be magnified in people's lives. And the only way that will happen is by embracing our vulnerability so that the surpassing power can work through our humility, not through our pride. James 4, 6, God opposes the proud. He gives empowering favor to the humble. A clay pot is humble. If you want to be a gold-plated, diamond-studded container, God can't, won't, will not bless that. And again, the most profound illustration of a broken clay pot is the cross of Christ. The power of God leaps from that cross. And it befuddled everybody, even his people, to even his closest friends in Mark 8, when Jesus gave them the secret handshake. 
and said, this is what's going to happen. I'm going on a cross and die. And Peter said, no, you're not. I rebuke you. Get behind me, Satan. You don't understand. The foolishness of God is wiser than you, Peter. And the weakness of God is stronger than you, Peter. Put your sword up. You're going to see something that is going to blow your mind away. Now, Peter eventually got it. He eventually captured the idea, as we see in Acts 2, one of the most profound phrases in Acts. It says, it says and Peter stood up. That's the preface to his great sermon. And when I read that, Peter stood up. Wait a minute. A while ago, you were cursing him and denying him. But Peter got it. And he stood up and he preached the gospel to them through his brokenness and the power of God was magnified and people were saved. But we don't want to be this way. And it's hard. God knows it's hard. It's hard to suffer. It's hard to, to come to that place in your life where you wrestle with God to where he works in your heart. And, and the only real way that you can come to that kind of sovereign clarity is, is in your closet, on your knees, begging God to help you through whatever the situation is in your life. And God in His mercy does that. He pushes us beyond our strength. That's what He was doing in Matthew, in Matthew 14. You don't have to go there. But, I mean, you know the passage. Peter's in a boat with his buddies, and uh, <laughs> Jesus comes out on the water doing Jesus stuff. And uh, he told Peter, I love Peter, and you're not going to hear any rebuke in what I'm about to say, because I don't, I don't, I don't struggle at all with anything Peter did that, on that dark and stormy night. And I don't make fun of him, mock him, or rebuke him, because Peter did something unbelievable. So anyway, the Lord's walking down the water, and uh, Peter's on the boat. And he said, Lord, that be you, bid thou to come unto thee. And so Peter's standing on that boat. <laughs> now, you could say that the boat, let's call the boat uh, SS. That sounds boatish, doesn't it? Yep. All right, so the boat is SS, self-sufficiency. This is my boat. I'm in my self-sufficient boat. I'm in my comfort zone. And that's where I want to be. Now, God, Jesus, says, Jesus is over there. Now, that's a problem. That's a definite problem. It's a, it's a lot of a problem because he's standing on the water. And now this is what Jesus says. He says, this is amazing right here. He says, come. That was it. He said, come. Uh, I try, uh, we've been teaching our children, especially my son, because he's a boy, which most sons are, <laughs> that to, to talk, he's 14 now, and amazing, for, but for any of you ladies that are looking for a wonderful man, my son is, he's, a, he's an excellent, I'm not just saying that because I'm a dad, he's an amazing guy. Marriage material is what I'm saying if you're having a hard time discerning this. But so I tried to teach him all of his life to 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 talk in more than monosyllabic grunts. <laughs> and so he's not really permitted to answer questions with yeah, no, uh, or fine, 
or good. And I know there's a whole list of them in the monosyllabic grunt dictionary. And so he has to talk in whole sentences. But Jesus here says, come, that's it, come. That's all he gets. Now, in my way of thinking, it's like, Jesus, I need a little more information. Send me an email. Shoot something up in the cloud because you can do stuff like this before there ever was a cloud. And you can, like, tell me more about what's about to happen. And I think it was intentional for it to be that way. And then God is kind of intentional himself. And so I think that it being a monosyllabic word, I think that was intentional because the deal for us is we want as much information as we can possibly get, and then we will step out in faith based on all the information that we have. But the problem with that is, is that our faith will be in the information we have and not the God that we should be having faith in. And so Jesus put it as simple as he possibly could so that it's not like, okay, Peter, here's the deal, because this is what I would want. Peter, when you step out of that boat, you're going to walk on water, you're going to sink down a little bit, and then immediately I'm going to reach forth my hand and pull you up. We're going to get back on the boat. You're going to worship God, and I'm going to rebuke you. Okay, I'm cool with that. All right. And so I step out, sink down. Immediately Jesus reached out, pulled me up, get back on the boat, Worship God, rebuke me. That's not trusting God. That's trusting the known facts that I had, which is why I did all that in the first place. That's not faith at all. And so God is calling Peter to get out of his self-sufficiency. Corinthians, I don't want you to be unaware of what was going on with me that night in that boat. That God, in his mercy to me, pushed me beyond my strength to the place to where I despaired of life. Lord, save me. But God wanted to teach me not to rely on myself, but to rely on him who raises the dead. And so Peter, and this is what's so amazing about that passage, is that he, <laughs> okay, who cares that he's sunk? Really? Don't rebuke Peter for that. Because the man got out of the boat. He stepped out of his self-sufficiency. But this is what I also want you to see. And this is important, and you don't want to admit, uh, miss this. And I mentioned it twice already. Jesus sunk, Peter sunk down in the water. And he said, Lord, save me. And read the next two words are two of the most profound words in the entire Bible. Jesus immediately reached out his hand. Because here's the deal, and this is what we learn in Psalm 23, 3. The Lord leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. This wasn't about Peter. This is about God Almighty. God's name was on the line that night. God's name is on the line with your life too. What he has begun, he is going to complete, Philippians 1, 6. You're in good hands with God. You may take on water. You may despair of life. You may be pushed beyond your self-sufficiency. And by the way, you will be. You have to be. God has to get you out of that boat and give you a little opportunity to water walk so that you can take on water, so that you can experience God in a profound way. And then you get back on the boat, you worship God, and what does he rebuke them for? He rebukes them for their faith or lack of faith. 
God wants us to experience him in profound ways. And he puts us in these positions to where the only way we can experience him is when we are beyond our ability to fix the situation. So he puts the treasure in a jar of clay so that nobody is confused about what is going on. The power belongs to God himself and not to us. That's the second text. The final text what Paul wants to do at this point. In, first, in 2 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9, he gives you this concept, this theory, through his practical life of what God is doing. And then in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, he gives you these word pictures of treasure and jar of clay. And in 2 Corinthians 12, he makes it personal. He gives you a peek into his life, 7 through 10. 2 Corinthians 12. Paul had, uh, Paul had a problem. His problem was that he yielded to the temptation of pride. He yielded to the temptation of pride because of the abundant revelations that were given to him. It's hard to steward gifting. It's hard to steward God's gifts. Sometimes we can go Nebuchadnezzar on God and think this is all our doing. Or as Paul said, what have you received that was not given to you? And so Paul had a propensity to be proud. And he tells us that, verse 7, So to keep me from becoming conceited, in 2 Corinthians 12, 7, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to harass me. Have you ever felt harassed? <laughs> oh, dear God, I feel so harassed to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. Right here comes the jar and the treasure. My power is perfected in your weakness, period. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. Why, Paul? The surpassing power belongs to God and not to us, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. There's a lot here. I just want to draw attention to just a couple of things, and we'll be finished. We all have a propensity to be proud. It's just part of our DNA, so to speak, our Adamicness. Being born in Adam is to be born proud. To be saved is not entirely, doesn't mean you're entirely sanctified. You receive definitive sanctification, as you know, when you are saved. But there's also progressive sanctification as you progressively work out the salvation that God is working into you, as Paul said in Philippians chapter 2. And what he means there by working out your salvation, it doesn't mean work for your salvation. Salvation is a gift. You do not work for it at all. But this great salvation that he has given to you, you are working it out in your sanctification as you are maturing, as you're growing up in Christ's likeness. And so you are saved as a gift, and it's not based on anything that you do. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 is a gift from God through the means of grace and we are regenerated based on the works of Christ, not based on our works. But as 
after God gives us this great salvation, we have the opportunity to cooperate with the Lord to mature in Christ-likeness. As newborn babes, we desire the sincere milk of the Word that we may grow thereby. As Peter told us, we don't want to be what the Hebrew writer said in Hebrews 5, verses 12 through 14, that we can't eat meat any longer. We desire milk, and we have become dull of hearing. And so we want to grow up in our salvation. But we're born in Adam, and we still struggle with pride post-being regenerated, post-being born again. And because of that, and because God loves us, He brings things into our lives to help us, to bring us to a position of weakness, to a position of brokenness. He pushes us beyond our strength. I do not want you to be unaware of this, my Corinthian friends, as Paul would say here. It is fully appropriate to pray three times to ask God to remove it, or 70 times 70, or any other number you find in the Bible. Just pray that many times, 144,000 times, I mean, whatever. But at some point, we must rest in God's kindness to us. It could be that God is doing a deeper work in your life for mysterious purposes that have not been revealed yet, as we learn in Deuteronomy 29, 29, that the secret things belong to the Lord. And there are secret things that God does not reveal to us but we walk by faith. There was a secret thing going on that night in Matthew 14 that Jesus was not going to reveal to Peter, but Peter stepped out in faith and he, he figured out that secret thing after he was pushed beyond his strength. And he had a supernatural experience with God. I often think about that as I could see Peter as an old man walking by the Sea of Galilee and all these little children come up to Mr. Peter. Mr. Peter, Mr. Peter, tell us the story again. You remember that night? Oh, we learned that in Sunday school. I saw it on the flannel graph. Oh, Mr. Peter, tell us that night when you were walking on the water with Jesus. I want to hear it again. That's faith feeling. But a lot of us don't have supernatural relationships with the Lord because we want to stay on our boat and we kick against being pushed out of our boat. Paul was resisting as any normal human being would resist. And so he prayed three times, oh, dear God, let this thing, let it leave me. Take it away, God, take it away. Totally appropriate. The thing that amazes me probably more than anything in this passage of Scripture is what is not in this passage of Scripture, and it's right there. What I want you to do, starting at verse 9, he says, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. All right, here it is. It's between weakness and therefore. You see it? There's a gap there between weakness and therefore. And what is so impressive to me about that gap between the word weakness and therefore, when my mother died a few years ago, I wrote an article about that. At the end of the article, I said something like, I love you, Mom. I'll see you in heaven. Tell Paul I have questions. And you can read it. It's on my website. This is what I mean. I don't say it in, in what I wrote to my, about my mother. But here's, I have a lot of questions for Paul, but here's the first one. This is my very first question right here. The gap between weakness and therefore. You see, God said, 
Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, and my power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul said, therefore, I'll boast the more gladly of my weakness. Is this like, are you serious? Because I know in my experience with God, when he says my grace is perfected in your weakness, the first thing out of my mouth is not, well, therefore, I'll boast all the more of my uh, weaknesses. Generally speaking, it takes me anywhere from one to one month to three years to accept the reality of my situation, depending on the situation. And if you just read this text like you read 4.25 chapters every day to get through the Bible in a year, you'll just blow right through that gap, not see it, not stop long enough to think about it. And the question that I want to ask Paul is, Paul, how long did it take you to hear this news that this thorn ain't going to ever leave you, and you concluded that you're going to boast all the more gladly in your weaknesses. How long did it take you to get to that spot in your life? That's the question I want to ask Paul, and I'm serious. I'm dead serious about it. I'm going to ask him. Because I haven't been able, in my most significant trials, I have not been able to just... <laughs> move that quickly through that verse that gap that gap for me can be a long time and I've spent a lot of time in the closet or various other places walking the roads begging God because I was kicking against the weakness that he was bringing in my life I was in some instances angry at God because of what he was bringing in my life and I I could not get to this place where I could boast in my weaknesses and I find this phenomenal that Paul can hear the news that God says, my grace is sufficient for you, my power is made perfect in weakness, therefore I'll boast all the more gladly. But that is where we have to go. It's not necessarily resigning yourself that your situation will never change, but it is accepting the fact that God is great. And that you are resting in him who raises him from the dead. And that you have sovereign clarity on this situation. And that perchance it does not change, you can still boast all the more gladly in your weaknesses. The last sentence in this verse, verse number 10, the short sentence at the end. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And that is the secret to life. When I am weak, then I am strong. That is the gospel personified. A man dying on the tree, total humiliation and weakness, and you have never seen so much power on display. It's the power of God that leads to salvation through weakness of a man dying on the tree. For when I am weak, I am strong. The foolishness of God is wiser than men. The weakness of God is stronger than men. Look at the cross and you will see it clear as day. And Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 2, that is your example as Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should walk in his steps. And through that weakness, you will experience power, but you will also experience contentment, gladness, joy, and a strength that is otherworldly. These are the three major verses that embrace, in my view, a theology of suffering through 2 Corinthians. There's one other passage I want us to close with that you're quite familiar with. It's in Philippians chapter 4. 
Verse 13, we put it on Instagram, we put it on beautiful pictures on Facebook. It's one of our favorite verses in all the Bible. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This verse is too many times read out of context. The context of this verse, verse 11, verse 12, Paul's telling the church at Philippi, he says, not that I am speaking of being in need. I'm not, I'm not talking about being in need. I'm not talking about being in need. He said, I've learned. <laughs> he said, I've learned. We, we read his learning in 2 Corinthians 12. I've learned. I don't want you to be unaware. And now he's, talk, he's talking to the Philippians here. I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. What Paul is doing here is giving you the full spectrum. Abject poverty, being in need, being hungry, facing plenty, and then way over here having abundance and having it all. He's saying that it doesn't matter where I fall on this spectrum. Absolutely broken, absolutely full, it doesn't matter. I can do all things. I can live over here, which is part of all things, and I can live way over here, which is part of all things in verses 11 and 12. It doesn't matter where God has me on this spectrum because I can do all things through him who strengthens me, him who raises the dead, him who puts treasure in a jar of clay, him who shoves a thorn in the flesh in me so that his perfection and his, I mean his strength can be perfected in my weakness. Do not be ignorant of what's going on in my life. Wherever God has me on this spectrum, I can do all things because it's his strength. I am not the gold-plated box studded with diamonds. I'm the broken jar of clay. And wherever God places me in life, I can do all things. Because it's not I can do all things through me who strengthens me. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Do not be unaware of the affliction that you are going through. Let's pray. Father, we love you and so grateful for your kindness to us. We know who we are. We're jars of clay. We feel our brokenness every day. Lord, help us to not resign ourselves to a pitiful life, but also not be overcome by our brokenness. Lord, give us otherworldly strength and insight, clarity, power. Help us to experience that power in a jar of clay. Help us to become content in our weaknesses, to be able to boast in our weaknesses, to be a megaphone to a world that has no help because they're resisting the gospel at every turn because they resist weakness and foolishness. And so, Lord, help us to give a, a better answer than what the world is offering. May people come up to us and say, Mr. Peter, Mr. Peter, tell us again of that great night where you experienced God. Lord, give us those experiences as we 
walk on our own water and as we take on water get to experience you afresh as you save us immediately lord i believe lord we believe help our unbelief thank you for your kindness in christ's name amen you have been listening to life over coffee with rick thomas if you have a question for Rick, you can let him know by sending him a note through his website, rickthomas.net. That's rickthomas.net. Thanks for listening. Enjoy your coffee.